You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Mike Yim, and I am the home groups minister here at Citizens Church. If this is your first time visiting, then welcome. We are so glad to have you here this morning with us. We are in our final week. We are in our final Sunday of Advent. Let me remind you, as we've been, as we've been doing every week, that the English word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. So Advent is a time when Christians celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. But the Bible does not teach only one arrival, only one Advent, but there are two. There's Christ's first coming, which occurred 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem in a manger. And there is Christ's second coming, his future coming when he returns at the end of human history to consummate all things. And so we are a people that live in the tension between these two Advents. And so for this month, we've been practicing the discipline of Advent, taking on the posture of waiting on the Lord, the posture that's been the marker of God's people from the very beginning. And so over this past month, we've delved delved into various aspects of Christ's coming. We've looked at what does grace look like? What does worship look like? What does love look like in this period between the two Advents of Christ? Today, I have the privilege and the pleasure to preach on the topic of peace. How do God's people live as people of peace during this time between the two comings of Christ when peace can feel so far away? What is peace for a Christian? What does it look like? How do we get it? I'm going to cover peace in three motions. First, the promise of peace. Second, the problem of peace. And third, the practice of peace. That is, I'm going to talk about what it is, what it's not, and finally, what it looks like in action. Before I begin, let me give a little bit of personal context. This topic is not merely uh, intellectually interesting to me but it's deeply personal. Uh, My wife and I just celebrated our 12th anniversary less than two months ago. Thank you. But in the 12 years that we've been married, we have suffered through many different things. My wife has suffered from a seizure disorder ever since she was a little girl. Watching her suffer and being totally Unable to do anything to help her has been one of the hardest things for us to walk through together. And I have had chronic, debilitating migraines ever since I was in eighth grade. In fact, the first time I preached here, I had a migraine right before I came up on stage and a migraine right after I left. If you watch the video, I think there's, if you you know what to look for, you can see the moment when my vision blanks out and I can't see anything. So in addition to suffering individually, we have suffered together as a couple. We've suffered through infertility and miscarriage for over a decade. 
I've been in ministry for over 20 years. And for uh, over 15 of those, I was in youth and children's ministry of, in some capacity. I'm very good with kids. And I love them very much. And Kathy and I have wanted children for so very long. So many long years. And yet our house remains quiet. Life has been relentless, exhausting at times. And yet God has been so continually kind, so continually good, so continually faithful to us. You might remember that when Job was suffering, his wife famously gave him the advice, why don't you just curse God and die? My question to you is, how is it that when we're suffering, we can press into God's peace and not despair? Instead of cursing God and dying, is it possible to praise God and live? Even when things seem super hard. When God seems so far away. My message today regarding God's peace in the time of Advent is deeply theological. But what it is not is theoretical. Point one, the promise of peace. What is God's peace and who is it for? We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 6. Let's take a look at verse 2. Let me give you a little historical context of the time and the place that Isaiah is writing. As he writes that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I want you to imagine, if you will, this is going to be difficult, but I think you can do it. Imagine a nation that is deeply divided. <laughs> divided into two countries. Imagine that the leaders that the people have been relying on have become increasingly corrupt and self-serving. Imagine that there are powerful opportunists that are destroying their own country to enrich themselves, while all the poor and the powerless, the lost and the lonely are being exploited and trampled. Imagine that the people who call themselves God's people, instead of turning to the Lord, Instead of seeking his face, instead of pointing people to him, they seek political solutions. They look to foreign alliances that only lead to increased injustice, increased suffering. It's in the midst of this kind of darkness, this kind of anguish, this kind of despair, that God's people begin to cry out, some in repentance and others are tempted to accuse God with that age-old line. God, are you even there? Are you even with us? Or have you left us to suffer and to die in this barren wasteland? Are you going to save us? Or, and if so, how are you going to do it? It is to these people that this passage was written. It's the people walking in darkness that saw the great light, the people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness upon whom the light shone. And this is why we practice the strange discipline called Advent. 
We don't run from our yearning. We don't run from the tension. No, we lean into it. We don't hide that we've been walking in darkness. We announce it. Advent is the season when we remind ourselves that, yes, we walk in great darkness, but we look to the light that tells us that God is with us. This stage is not decorated like this by accident. So let's get back to that question. How will God save his people? How will he deliver peace? For that, let's skip down to Isaiah 9 and 6. I wish I had time to exegete the whole passage, but let's just jump down. This is, this is the key verse, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's peace will come by way of a rescuer, a Messiah, a Savior. For to us a child is born. The word born reflects his nature as a naturally born human. The Savior who will bring peace will be fully human. A son is given. The word given reflects his nature as an unmerited divine gift that is sent from heaven. The Savior who brings peace will be fully divine. The government is upon his shoulder. The Savior who brings peace will be fully sovereign. The Savior also has many other names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. But the final title that we want to focus on for today is this, Prince of Peace. God's peace does not arrive as a what, but a who. That is, the promise of peace is a fully human, fully divine, a fully sovereign person known as the Prince of Peace. And his name is Jesus. If you feel poor and powerless. If you feel lost and lonely, this promise was written for you. He's coming for you. Point number two, the problem of peace. The problem of peace is that there are multiple competing views on what peace even is. There's a false peace and a true peace. There's a worldly peace and there's a godly peace. Where are we getting that? John 14, 27. Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus tells his disciples that he has so much peace that he's got extra to spare. He's just ladling it out. But he says that the kind of peace that he Offers that can keep us from being troubled, keep us from being afraid is not what the world is offering. So what's the world offering? The world offers two, two paths to peace. Idolatry or ignorance. I'll explain. You can change your circumstances. You can change your psychology. Let's look at the first one, idolatry. There's a kind of lie that the world tells that says that your peace is based in your circumstances. I could have peace if God would just give me that promotion. Give me that spouse. Give me that healing, that blessing, that baby that I want so bad. I could finally have rest, finally have peace if I could just get rid of these negative problems surrounding me that hound me in my life. It is the lie that peace can only be found in the absence of trouble, in the absence 
of problems. Now, let me be super clear about something. It is good. It is good to want a child. It's good to want a promotion, to be good at your job. It's, it's, it's good to want to be healed. It's good to want to find a faithful spouse, to want to be financially stable. It's okay to want those things. You're supposed to want those things. The problem is not that those things are not good. The problem is that those things are not God. If you try to take these good things that God has made to fulfill the deep desires that only God can fulfill, then you have fallen into a trap that the Bible calls idolatry. Idols never keep their promises. They never deliver. If your peace is grounded in having these things, then the second you lose whatever it is, if you lose your health, the cancer comes back, you lose your dream job, you lose your dream family, you lose that thing, then your peace is instantly shattered. You are, your peace only lasts as long as your last good day. That is not peace. I want to remind you of this. When did Jesus speak these words about having abundant peace to distribute to his disciples? Does he say that when life is easy? He's got all these Instagram followers and he's got the streaming deal on Netflix, you know? He's trending. No, that's not what's happening. He said them while he was fully aware that he's on his way to be arrested, to be accused of crimes that he never did, to be tortured, to be beaten, to be crucified, to be left by all of these disciples that he's been pouring his time and his effort and his life into. You see, the world's peace depends on your circumstances just being just right and staying that way. But the peace that Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with your circumstances being right. It does not depend on the absence of danger or trouble. He's abounding and overflowing in the very midst of danger and trouble. His peace does not depend on the absence of a problem, but on the presence of his person. The other way that the world offers peace is through ignorance. Have you ever seen the this is fine meme? Right? It's a little cartoon dog. He's sitting with a cup of coffee in the in this room and it's engulfed in flames. And he's got this sort of vacant, cute expression on his face. He's like, this is fine. The peace that comes through ignorance looks like this. Is your life hard? Try not to think about it too much. There's a million ways you can do that. Turn off your brain. Is your work stressing you out going on a vacation? That didn't work going on another vacation. Maybe more expensive vacation, more exotic vacation. I'm sure there's one for you. Right? Okay, that's too complicated. You don't like to travel, your homebody. Try a drink or 10. That didn't work. There's plenty of substances, right? Get high, get stoned. Like, there's so many ways you can... Just get numb. Okay, well, you don't like chemicals, okay? Doesn't have to be chemical ignorance. You can binge movies, binge TV shows, binge video games. Just infinitely scroll on your social media looking at other people's lives. It doesn't really matter what you do. The point is you need to numb the pain of existing. Stop thinking so much. Forget your problems. Don't think about your problems. The secret to peace is this. Just distract yourself until you die. 
Sounds great, right? But the peace that Jesus is talking about does not look like this either. His peace is not found in numbing our minds, but in sharpening them. Let me read to you from one of Jesus' later disciples. This disciple who received abounding peace in all situations. His name is Paul. And he writes to the Philippians this in chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul is saying here is that we get peace not by thinking less, but by thinking more. Now, Paul is not saying think happy thoughts, go to your happy place. That's just another kind of ignorance, another kind of avoidance. Also, this list of whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever pure is not just a general guideline of the kinds of things to think about. Like whatever's true, one plus one is two. That's true. Okay, that's not working. I feel horrible, right? That's not what this is. These are the things you should try to meditate on to spark joy. No, this list is referring to a very specific thing, a very strange thing. It's one thing. Paul is saying to ground our peace by meditating on Christian doctrine. Specifically, who is Jesus and what has he done? The person and work of Christ. Listen to me. What Paul is not asking you to do is to become more religious. He's not asking you to find more ways that you can pursue God. He's asking you to think about all the ways that God has pursued you. I urge you, and Paul urges you to press into the gospel. Press into the faithfulness of God. That brings me to my third and final point. So what does this practice of peace actually look like? It might surprise some of you. If you remember again, Jesus in John 14, 27, he tells his disciples that he's abounding in peace. He's got extra peace. He's going to give them peace. He's the infinite prince of peace, administering, to, administering it to his people as he heads to the cross. But a little while later, we find him praying in a garden. Luke twenty two forty two. 42, Jesus prays like this. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Wait, what? Let me ask you, does that sound like peace? Begging God to change his circumstances and being in such agony that his capillary blood vessels are bursting and leaking blood into his sweat? Like, what's going on here? Is John 14, like we caught Jesus on a good day. He's abounding with peace. He's like, hey, pretty good. And then Luke 22, Jesus is having a bad day and he's low on peace. By no means is that true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forevermore. Jesus is 
always maximally filled with infinite abounding peace. That's why he's the Prince of Peace. So then what's happening? What's this scene about? This is why Jesus said that his peace is not like the world's. He's not exhibiting the peace of the Stoic philosopher who takes it on the chin. This is not the peace of the Zen Buddhist with his eyes closed, placidly emptying his mind. This is not the peace of someone drowning out the pain. No, he is leaning into his discomfort, bringing it to the Lord. Jesus in his full humanity in essence is saying something like, God, I don't want this situation. I don't like this situation. Would you please take it away? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I have. Does your understanding of what peace look like have room for this? That you can have peace in the midst of wrestling through terrible circumstances. This is where Jesus' definition of peace is totally incompatible with the world's definition of peace. It's hard to recognize because we've been so discipled in false things. The key to understanding God's peace embodied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is found in understanding where his obedience is grounded. It is not a blind obedience. It's not a begrudging obedience. It's not a misguided obedience. It is fully informed, loving, trusting obedience. Let me walk you through this. How can we find it in ourselves to answer the way that Jesus answered? Not my will, but yours be done. To explain this, I'm going to have to tap into some deep theology that I learned in our kids' ministry. It's the sequence. Know, love, trust, and obey. Some of you might have heard this. This is what it sounds like in action. Father, even if I didn't know why this is happening, I do know you. Father, I don't love what you're asking me to do, but I, I do love you. Father, I don't trust the people around me. Half the disciples are sleeping over here. One's gone off to sell me off, and one of them's going to pretend that he doesn't even know me. But I do trust you. Whatever you're asking, I can obey. Not my will, but yours be done. This is what the Prince of Peace looks like in action. Jesus' obedience is not one that's grounded in obedience or idolatry. It's not begrudging, misguided. It's not perfunctory. Jesus obeys the Father out of being fully informed, fully knowing him, fully loving him, fully trusting him. Let me show you what this looks like in a Christian's life. So let's do this together. Let's, let's think about Christian doctrine together, and let's know, love, trust, and obey God together as we press into peace. All right, let me ask you this. Why is it that God has allowed me and my wife to suffer so much for so long. Do you know? Can you answer? I can't. I don't know the answer. I don't. But I know what the answer is not. The answer is not that God is punishing me, that God is angry with me, that God hates me. I know this because in Romans 8, 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Let me ask you this. Does God have the power to give me a child? What do you think? He does. Yes, he does. God is sovereign. He's the author of life. So then why hasn't he done it? Did I do something wrong? Are some of you better than me? Don't answer that. (laughs) Why hasn't he answered? We prayed. Many people have prayed for us. It's been 12 long years. I don't know why, but I know what the answer is not. The answer is not that God is withholding something good from me. You know how I know this? I know this because God has not withheld his own son from me. That's how I know that God's not withholding my son from me. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has not ever withheld anything good from me. And I know this because God has given me the thing that was most precious to him when I deserved it the least. His one and only son. More than that, his one and only son, Jesus, in the garden when he had a chance to run from the consequences of my sin, my failures, he ran towards them. When I was at my most disobedient to God, he was that is most obedient to God. Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you did anything to merit God's love, he was chasing after you. Before you began to pursue him, he was already pursuing you. If Jesus gladly died the death that I deserve so that I might receive the life that only he deserves... What I know is that he can be trusted with the questions that I don't understand, the ones that I can't answer, the things that I cannot comprehend. This is what it sounds like. God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't. I don't know why you haven't healed me. I don't know why you haven't killed my wife. But I do know you. I know you. Father, and that is enough. I know that you are true and that you're honorable, that you're just, that you're pure. I know that you're praiseworthy. I know that you are holy. I know that you are holy. And God, I don't know. I don't love what's happening to me either. I don't love what we've been through. But I do love you. And I know that you you have loved me with an unbreakable love from before the foundations of the earth were even laid. And God, I know that you love me because you gave your son for me. But God, please help me to feel your love. Sometimes it just feels so far. God, sometimes it's hard to trust the people around me. It's hard to trust that everything's going to be all right. Honestly, sometimes I can't even trust myself. But Lord, I always trust you. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. You never change. You never lie. You have always kept your promises to me, to your people, and you always will. Father, I trust you, but help me to trust you more. It's so hard. God, because I know you, I love you. And because I love you, I trust you. And because I trust you, I will obey you.
even when I don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. Some of these things are not the way that I would have done it. I would not have done it this way. But not my will, your will be done. Lord, I, I believe this and I teach it. And I'm preaching it right now. Oh, Lord, that the things that I believe in my head, that I could believe in my heart. Lord, I believe, would you help my unbelief? The practice of peace in this space between the two advents means knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying God. Peace between the advents is not the absence of trouble. No, it's the presence of a person who is faithful and true. His name is Jesus, and he's the Son of God. In closing, I want to say a few things. I've just addressed the theological basis for peace. But one of our values here at Citizens Church is whole person discipleship. Peace is not as simple as theology. Some of you, an aspect of your lack of peace has to do with your brain chemistry. Some of you need to get outdoors more. Some of you need to change your diet. Some of you need more friends. Some of you need someone to talk to. Some of our peace comes from physical sources. Some of it's relational. Some of it's emotional. Some of it's mental. We are complex. But even if you were to heal all those things, you get your brain chemistry right, you change your diet, you find someone to talk to, and you know, you're feeling good about yourself, you get super swole, you know, you're ready to go, right? <laughs> this peace will remain. You have to do business with God. So maybe you're someone who's currently in a good place. I mean, this message did not land with you. Right? You're, you're doing well when people ask you, like, hey, do you have a prayer request? You're all like, uh, no, I don't, I, I don't have any prayer requests. I'm too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> Let me gently remind you to make certain now, while things are good, that your peace is grounded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and not in your circumstances because they will change. All of us will receive that terrible phone call. All of us will receive that bad news. It is coming for all of us. That's not pessimism. That's just true. I urge you to press into Christ so that in the day of trouble you will be found standing on rock and not sand. We love you. Lean into it. Or maybe you're a believer and you've been struggling with hurt, with loss, with questions, with lack, with doubts. I want you to know that God understands the magnitude of it all. That's why he sent his son and not a prophet or a priest or a king. No human prophet or priest or king could repair the horrors and the little indignities that we suffer every day. No human being could repay all the things that have been stolen from us, the things that we've destroyed. It is God alone who can do that. God alone who can reconcile. God alone who can restore. And that is why he has done it. And he is doing it and he will do it. Christ has come and he's coming again. Advent reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises. And part of his promise keeping includes building a family, building a church to carry us when we're feeling weak. Lean in, don't lean away. You are not meant to do this alone. We love you. 
and we need you, and we need to love you. We are not a church if we don't do that. Finally, maybe you're here, and you are not a believer, or you're not sure if you're a believer. You're just here as a favor to a family member, or a friend, or a coworker. Maybe you're not sure if you believe any of this stuff. And yet you've been feeling that nagging feeling that peace has been eluding you all these years. You've tried drowning the feelings. you tried chasing your dreams. And yet you're still left with that empty feeling, that restlessness. I want you to know that that feeling comes from being at war. You're at war with God. You're at war with yourself. You're at war with other people. You're at war with the universe itself. God's perfect creation is shattered by our sin and our restlessness and our anxiety and our existential dread are simply symptoms of this spiritual deadness, this spiritual war. And yet God consistently loves people who hate him, consistently pursues people who run away from him, I want you to know that this is a safe place for questions, for your doubts, for your hurting, for your pain. Being honest about walking in darkness is part of what Advent is about. I urge you to come speak with one of the elders or ministers or pastors afterwards for prayer. We love you too. If you are here, you are here for a reason. Do not miss. You are so close to the kingdom of God. Life is a gift, and God is the giver. We need to pray that God would make us thankful to receive whatever he gives us, because we know that he's for us and not against us, that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might trust him, so we can obey whatever he asks. Let's pray. God, I, I just pray that you would bless us with your peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, give us your very presence. Lord, that you would be Emmanuel, God, with us. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, we would fear no evil because you're with us. You're present on the top of the mountain. You're present with us in the valley of darkness, in the day of trouble. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, we await your coming. But until that day, sustain us, God. Sustain us with your presence, O oh Lord. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us to know you. Lord, help us, even when we're walking in darkness, to keep our eyes fixed on the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.